Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm going to be talking about how Christ transforms a culture today out of Acts chapter 19. Uh, if you would, please rise out of reverence for the reading of God's words. Acts chapter 19, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, uh, but I'm going to start in verse 21 and just read a bit of it. And then I'm just going to, we're just going to go through this whole chapter and just make some observations along the way. Uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Let's pray this morning. Father, we come to you and we ask you uh, to open the eyes of the blind this morning. We ask you to reconcile to your Son all things in heaven and on earth. We ask you to loose um, the blinders, loose the chains, break them, shatter them. Uh, we ask you to begin a work in Carbondale. You've already begun a work in Carbondale, but we ask that you would grow your word. We ask that your word would prevail here. And I just ask, Father, that you would uh, just teach us something about yourself today. Teach our hearts something about you today. May we experience you today in some way new. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, y'all may be seated. Um, we're going to be talking about culture this morning, and I want to tell you a little bit about the culture that I grew up in, uh, just to kind of introduce this. Uh, I grew up in Vienna, Illinois. Uh, many of you are, are familiar with Vienna. Many of you have passed by it on the interstate. didn't take you too long to pass through it if you've been through it. Uh, we grew up with things like Deer Day, uh, where we'd get a holiday for school. We'd get out of school for a day to hunt deer. Uh, there's another day we'd have a tractor day and so the seniors would come in and drive their tractors to school and park them uh, on school property uh, and that's the type of town that I grew up in everybody knew your name and that was a good thing uh, sometimes it wasn't so good a thing uh, I mean my parents are here this morning they'd find out things I did but by the time I got home from school uh, sometimes that wasn't as good a thing um, spiritually speaking you know people everybody would claim to be a Christian if they were to take a survey and fill, they'd fill in the, the Christian bubble. Uh, they would go to church most every Sunday. And, but it was kind of a, I would describe it as a country music Christianity. Uh, you know, if, if heaven were a pie, it would be cherry. And, uh, and everybody, there'd be enough for everybody. Everybody could have the, the cherry pie. Uh, and so it was just kind of that type of a Christianity. You know, it was poker on Saturday night and church on Sunday morning uh, kind of Christianity. Uh, a lot of camouflage. 
and I and I and I grew up in this, and I and I loved it. There, I love Vienna. I love the town I grew up in. Uh, but I left Vienna in, in 2000. I graduated high school. And I went down to Murray State, and I did my undergrad down there. And uh, I joined a fraternity for all the wrong reasons. Um, and, I, and it was basically in, during the middle of this uh, fraternity time, uh, my views on life, my whole view of the world uh, was challenged and, and, um, and stretched. And uh, I remember I was in this one uh, function in the fraternity. Don't tell them I told you this, or I might get they might like blackball me or something. I don't know. But uh, there, there was this function called the three W's. And the first W, they, they brought me in, and there was this uh, into this room. And there was a sheet, and uh, there was a. I was kneeling down before it, and there was this bright light behind the sheet, and somebody stood between the the, the light and the sheet. So you had this ominous like shadow figure. You know, I'm 18 years old, and I'm kneeling down below this thing. I'm like, what the heck am I getting, what have I gotten myself into? And then they asked, this, this ominous shadow figure asked me a question. They said, who are you? And of course, anybody, you're just going to say your name, probably. That's what I did. I just said, I am Russ Cruder. And then they asked me again as if it wasn't the right answer. Who are you? I was like, I'm Russ, Russ Cruder. And then the third time, they screamed, at, who are you? And I said, I'm just like, whatever you want me to be, I don't, I don't know. And then they asked me the second question, what are you? What are you? What are you? I didn't have an answer. And the third question was, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? I didn't have, a, I didn't have any certitude, no assurance, nothing that I knew where I was going. At the same time, I had a friend of mine pass away. He had cancer. Uh, he was 20 years old. Uh, and I went to this funeral, and I see this 20-year-old man, not, uh, young man laying in a casket. And some of you have been there. It's a terrible experience. You, you go there, and, and it really puts your life in perspective when you see a guy that's your age uh, laying in a casket. Uh, and at the same time, I began to get in, this, in the same season. This is all just a season, not one particular moment. Uh, I got in this theological debate in the fraternity house of all places with some guys that the fraternity mockingly referred to as the Christian Coalition. And, it, uh, and basically, they said, here, you just need to... They started quoting out of Romans. They were in Romans 1, and then they got into Romans 8, and then they, they went there. They went to Romans 9, and I wanted to, I wanted to win this argument, uh, so I began to, to study Romans, and uh, one guy handed me a book. It was called The God You Can Know by a guy named Dandy Hahn. It was like a 1980s publication. It had like pink clouds on it and stuff like that. I, I had thrown it up on the shelf. I even picked that up and began to read it, and I remember I came home over Thanksgiving break. My parents thought I was going crazy. Uh, I'd be up in my room in my attic bedroom at my house in Vienna till three in the morning, reading scripture, reading the God you can know. It was a, it was a painful, disillusioning, dizzying experience. And basically, during this season, God took my worldview, every everything that I grew up in, everything that I'd experienced growing up in that in that culture that I'd grown up in. He just he turned it upside down, and it was a painful experience. It was a challenging experience. And I remember, you know, my parents even asked the pastor that I grew up sitting under to, to contact me because they were worried about me. And so he began to contact me. And then he was like, All, everything that you're learning right now is wrong. It's wrong. So the pastor I've got in here is telling me this. These, these fraternity brothers, I'm trying to win this argument. And, and to make a long story short, I lost the argument. Uh, and I found myself in the middle of this room at the fraternity house. I remember there was this one night in particular. Beer bottles are busting. There's a party going on out here, and the bass is kicking into the room. 
And I'm on the middle, I'm, I'm laying like just prostrate in the middle of the floor, crying out for God to be merciful to me, a sinner. And it was then, as I experienced God's mercy, I then began to appreciate His grace that I did not deserve. I beheld the cross, and on the cross there was my death, there was my sin, there was my justice, there was the wrath that I deserved, there was God's grace, there was God's mercy, and there was God's love, all intersecting, all coming together at the same point at that time in history on the cross of Christ. And there was my righteousness. I beheld Him there, my perfect, spotless righteousness. There was the way. And you, you read the Scriptures, you read through the book of Acts, and we see it here in Acts chapter 19, references to the way. Not a way, but the way. And, and I remember thinking, like, Jesus is in the garden. He's in, he's, he's in the Mount of Olives, and he's, he's crying. He's saying, he's, got, he's sweating his, his uh, arteries and his capillaries and his, and his face are busting, and mixed with his sweat is blood. He is in great distress. He is saying, Father, if there is any other way besides this cup, take this cup from me. Take it away. There was no other way. This is the way. This is the only way that a sinful wretch before a holy and just and righteous God can be saved. There's no other way. And thankfully, he took that cup. And if you read through the Psalms and you read through uh, the, the Old Testament, you learn that the cup is referring to the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. And for all the time, ever since the fall and the curse took place, if you can envision like water in a dam growing and growing and filling and filling and filling until finally it could take no more, the dam busts. And if just imagine, just imagine being down in the valley there. You're living in your little village. You're living your little quiet life. And you hear this giant boom, this giant crack. And you look up and you see this tide of black water coming at you furiously. What can you do? There's nothing you can do. You are doomed to die. But then just imagine right at the last moment, right before it got to you, the ground opens up and swallows up every last drop of that water. That's what took place on the cross for us. And this is the message. This is the word that spread throughout Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And I just want to march through this uh, with us very quickly and make some observations with it. This metamorphosis that I went through, this 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You see, there's an old man and there's a new man. An old man and a new man. And what we need is not just to, get, just to make our lives right and try to do the things that, that are hard for us to do and just try to grunt out this righteous life and avoid, you know, suppress all these pleasures over here and, and avoid doing all the things that are wrong. What we need is, is a new creation. We need regeneration. We need new life in Christ. And that cannot happen apart from hearing the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing on Him. There's no other way that this regeneration can take place. It has to be through this mechanism, through this instrument of hearing the Word of God going into the ears, not just a good lifestyle. You, you hear this, this quoted all the time, preach the gospel if necessary, use words that could not be farther from the truth. Buddha can do that. 
Look at, look at the Buddhists. They live a good moral life. Look at the Mormons. They live a good moral life. Look at all the religions of the world. They're trying to live a good moral life, and it's powerless to save anybody. What we need are words. We need this word of this gospel, and it's got to go into the ears, and it's got to go down into the heart, and it's got to regenerate and raise the dead. That's what we've got to have. And that's what is spreading in Europe. And that is, I just want to make some, or Europe, in Ephesus, not Europe. Um, and I want to go through this and just make some observations here. Uh, just, and we're not going to read all this. I'm just going to make observations. If you have your Bible, and by the way, uh, Andy had asked me to make mention of this, and I forgot to do it. There are pew Bibles underneath your seat. So if you don't have your Bible, you can, or you forgot it or something, you've got one there for you. Uh, let's just look at chapter 19, uh, beginning in verses 1 through 7. Uh, and I'm just going to just kind of summarize all this and march through it. And I want to make some observations because this is, uh, I think I see a lot of similarities between Ephesus and Carbondale. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of similarities there. Uh, if you go to Ephesus, it's, it's a melting pot. You've got cultures from all over the world converging there in Ephesus. Carbondale, we've got people from all over the world converging here in Carbondale. And, and you've got all these different cultures, and you've got idol worship. Idol worship is going on here too. It may not look like little figurines. It may not be, look like a statue, a physical statue, but we all have gods. And there are gods that we struggle with worshiping in this room this morning, that each and every person in this room struggles with worshiping. And you know about it when you lose it, or when you, you fear that it's going to be taken away from you. It could be your social status. It could be, it could be power and greed. It could be a number of different things. So let's look at chapter 19, or chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. You've got disciples of John the Baptist here, and they had not yet heard. Again, this, I just want this to fly in the face of this, this good lifestyle is going to save people. Your good lifestyle is not going to save a single person on this planet. It didn't save anybody in Ephesus. It didn't save anybody in all the New Testament, and it's not going to save anybody today. Your goodness is not going to save. Your morality is not going to save. What is going to save somebody is the word of truth. The truth shall set people free. There's no other way. So these disciples had not heard. It didn't say that they had not seen their good lifestyle of the apostles, does it? It says they had not heard. What had they not heard? They had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you go back to the beginning of chapter 18, or the end of chapter 18, you've got... Apollos says he is, in verse 28, he is powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And so that's what's going on in the synagogues. Paul's going into the synagogues, and that's what he's doing. And, and then he's going out here, and these disciples of John the Baptist, they're getting baptized as a baptism of repentance. They don't know who they're really repenting toward. They don't know Christ yet. So they come and they introduce them to Christ, and now all of a sudden they have a, a Christ to cling to when they repent. So they repent and they begin to cling to Christ. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and power comes upon them. And it begins to spread all over Ephesus. And so this hearing of the words of God leads them to behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. Hearing is beholding. And then you go down uh, to verses 8 to 10, and notice three things, actually four things here. Uh, the first thing, notice the, uh, the location where Paul was ministering. He's ministering in the synagogues. And, you know, we have reason, every reason to believe he's doing the exact same thing Apollos did in the synagogues. He's going to the Old Testament, 
And he's, he's going to Isaiah. He's talking about that by his stripes you will be healed. And he's going to all these different, uh, the bruised reed and, and all these different things. And here is Christ in the Old Testament. And it says he was in a synagogue until they became stubborn. There was this cue to leave. They became stiff-necked, as the Old Testament language talks about. So they became stiff-necked. They actually began to spoke evil of the way. So Paul moves on from there. And then look at the message, the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. We've already talked about it. And then third, look at the time, how much time Paul spent there. It wasn't a weekend retreat. Not that weekend retreats are bad. They can be very profitable. But he spent three months in the synagogue, and then he spends two years outside of the synagogue in a hall of Tyrannus. He's talking to the Greeks and anybody that would listen. So he spends a reasonable amount of time in two different addresses with many of the same people over and over and over again. So he's getting to know these people. He's building relationships with people. He's dealing with their uh, arguments and he's arguing back from the scriptures about Christ. He's going to stake and shake, so to speak. He's spending time with these guys. This is not a quick fix. I mean, it could be, but in this particular case, Paul is spending a lot of quality time with these people. And then the last thing, the ministry. Who was he ministering to? Was it Jews only? No. He was ministering, it says here, to Jews and Greeks. Anybody that would listen to him. Anybody that would listen. And so I think sometimes you can, we can all just get into this over-spiritualized, man, what is God leading me? Where is God leading me to minister? Uh, God's leading me to minister to internationals on SIU's campus or whatever. And on your way to the city, you pass over all these people that God put right in front of you. Sometimes we make it so complicated and you just look, at, look within your sphere of influence and maybe this is one point of application for today. Take a, prayerfully consider the sphere of influence where you are right now, where God has placed you right now. Maybe there's, there's people right in front of your face uh, that God is giving you to minister to. Maybe instead of, maybe it's not, let's go to Carbondale and minister international so much as it is, let's look at the child across the table from me at dinner. Maybe that's ministry. Well, I know it is. I don't have, there's no maybe about it. If God has given you children, you've got a ministry right there. There's at least one ministry that God's given you. And so I, I think about it like, like kind of like basketball. In basketball, there's this language your coaches talk about. You take what, take what the game gives you. Take what the, the defense gives you. Well, look at what God's already given you. You may not have to go to the other side of the world. Maybe it's right here in Carbondale. Maybe it's right here in Marion. Maybe it's right here in Carterville, wherever you are. Examine your, your sphere of influence. Um, and so I'm, off, I'm learning oftentimes that ministry, that you don't have to go to Indonesia uh, to the ends of the earth to minister. Oftentimes ministry is right here in front of your face or right across the dinner table from you. Uh, let's go down to verses 11 to 20. 11 to 20. Now you've got this spiritual realm. This is all happening here in this Ephesus region, this Ephesus city. Uh, you've got the, as this, the word is spreading, uh, as Paul is and the disciples are making more disciples, as more and more people are being regenerated, uh, now, you, now you start opening up and you see the spiritual realm, realm being exposed. And you've got people that are demon-possessed, and you've got the Jewish exorcists come in here, and they're, they're hearing, well, I can use Jesus' name, and I can get results with that. So they start using Jesus' name to get results 
for themselves. It's just it's all it's a spiritual pragmatism, is what it is. So hey, I can use Jesus to get results for my own ministry, and that's one thing we're going to keep building on uh, later on as well. And then you go to verses fifteen and sixteen. You've got people, and this this demon just is taking over, and he says, "This Jesus I know, Paul I know, but you I do not recognize." And then. And then the demon just, I mean, it overpowers them. They run out of their house naked and scared. It's a humiliating experience. So the pragmatism doesn't work, does it? Pragmatism will not do anything in Carbondale or anywhere in the world. The ism of it. Uh, so this Jesus I know. Now notice two things about this is, uh, A, Jesus is very relevant and very famous in the spiritual realm. So you may, it may not look like things are happening in Carbondale. It may, not, it may not look like things are taking place around the world. It may not look like things are taking place in North Korea or things are taking place in Iran or some of the harder places of the world. But nothing is more relevant and more famous in the spiritual realm than Jesus. The demons know who Jesus is. And things are taking place in the spiritual realm that we, just, we, ha we can't even begin to, to ponder or consider. And one day, though it may not appear today, one day Jesus will be the most relevant being. He already is, but one day people will know it. Amen. And it'll be very clear, and there'll be no more questions. And, and this is just a, a, an urging for me just to be bold. I mean, we have the key that unlocks the door to every why question that has ever been asked. Science doesn't have that key. Science can stare at something, but it doesn't know where it came from. It doesn't know why it exists. It just stares at stuff. Philosophy, uh, re reason, you know, there's a point. They have, a, they have an end point. They can only take you so far. They can't answer ultimately why questions. Only Christ and truth can give you the answer to those why questions. And, so, and then secondly, the second point here in verses 11 to 20, God used a demon to magnify Jesus and make him famous. God actually, in, in his divine wisdom, this demon was used to make Jesus famous throughout Ephesus. Um, the name of Jesus, verse 17, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled because of a demon. This Jesus I know. This Jesus I know. So people started coming to Christ. People started asking questions based on this demon's testimony of knowing who Jesus was. And the Bible talks about how he can even make rocks cry out. So that, that's a humbling thought. God does not need you. God does not need me. God does not need Jared. God does not need Andy. God does not need Christ church to make himself famous. He can make the chairs cry out. He can make the rocks cry out. He can allow a demon to cry out. He can use anything he wants. So it boils down to we've, we've been brought into something, and the only word that I can come up with to describe ministry of any kind for Christ is privilege. What a privilege we've been given to be participating with God and reconciling to Jesus Christ. He's like a divine magnet, and he's summoning people from all over the world to come to himself. And what a privilege to be here in Carbondale, this melting pot, with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, all right here in the same city. What a privilege. 
to be a part of such a ministry. Um, and then now, let's get into noticing how the gospel and the spirit began to affect this culture. Okay? And just a few more observations and we'll, we'll wind it up. So we're seeing some of the effects of this ministry in the final verses of this chapter. And I, I want this to be, because this can happen here. I want this to be energizing for us. I want this to be encouraging for us. Uh, because the way that God transformed Ephesus and began to work in Ephesus and brought people out in Ephesus, He can bring people out here and do the exact same thing here. And it can happen here. Look at verses 18 and 20. And this is what is left in the wake of, of this revival. These people began to, it says here, divulge their practices, confessing Christ as the truth. Verse 19, it says, they burned their magic art, arts book publicly. So it's not just that, okay, I'm going to sell my books and keep the money off of it. This is, these books are worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, in today's currency, that's equivalent to about $6 million. So this is a profitable... These people are making a lot of money on this magic. These magic books, this is their, their livelihood. And it's not just that, okay, I'm going to go sell these, and I'm going to give the money away or whatever. They burned it. They burned all their currency. They burned all of their books. And it was just, hey, this is all or nothing. I'm leaving it. Jesus talks about he puts his hand to the plow and looks back, excuse me, is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. This is what this is all about. This is a pain. Hey, this is, this is, this is, this is painful. I'm, I'm going to give this stuff up. I'm going to turn my back on this. I'm going to light it on fire. And then I'm going to turn and put my hand to this plow. And I'm going to follow Christ. Amen. I'm, giving up, I'm giving up all my money to do this. They burned their books publicly. It was a public display. You know, here at the, at the end of the service, we're going we're gonna to have like an invitation time, and we're just going to invite people. And Christians, we, should, we all struggle with this. I mean, I want to be popular. I want people to like me. I want people to respect me. And it comes out in my marriage. I want my wife to respect me. I want my kids to respect me. And if I don't feel like I'm getting the respect that I feel like I'm owed, guess what, guys? That's idolatry. I'm not God. God, God, God is worthy of respect, and I'm not Him. It's not about me getting respected all the time. And so we're just going to have a time here at the end just to pray and have people come up and you just want to take that and just symbolically smash that idol down on the altar of Christ. We're going to have that, that kind of a time. Uh, but I love this in verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It didn't say the word of Ephesus church, the glory of Ephesus church, the glory of Paul, the glory of Apollos, didn't say any of that, does it? It says the glory or the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word, the truth, the way. And that's what this is all about. It's not the traditions of men. It's not our past. You know, my town I grew up in, the culture I grew up in, they love the past. There's not nothing necessarily wrong with that. Could be wrong when you're chained to it and you're unwilling, you're so busy staring in the rearview mirror you can't move forward and your past becomes your idol and your, or it could be your country. And I love America. Don't hear me bashing America. I'm, I'm thankful to God for America. But if 
the flag of America takes precedence over the flag of Jesus Christ, we've got a problem. They could be an idol. So we are, we, Jesus says, or Peter says, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. America didn't exist back then when he wrote that. Uh, we are a part of the holy nation of Christ first and America second. Amen. And that's what we've got to remember. So our prayer should be this, not that, that God would grow our church, that God would make this church famous, that God would give us a stages and, and whatever. Our prayer should be ultimately that God would grow His Word, that the Word of Christ would spread like a killer virus, uh, killing people and raising them from the dead in Christ, like a spear going out. And that's what we need to be praying for God to do, and that God would impact His culture like that. And so we've got to be very careful that growing our church does not take the place of growing the Word. And it happens very easily. We can become very pragmatic. We can adopt the ways of the world. You know, like, and we start acting like Amazon. You know, like I've got, uh, we've got this business model, and this is working out here in the world. We can draw a crowd. We can do all these different things, and we can make our, ourselves famous, and we could have all these podcasts. And I'm not saying that podcasts are wrong. Don't hear me say that. But I'm saying that church worship is wrong. Amen. Your church can become your idol very easily if you're not careful. Very easily it can become all about building crowds and building your church and making Christ church famous in Carbondale instead of making Christ famous. And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't fall into that. God, please grow our church. Instead, we should be praying, God, please grow your word and may your word prevail in Carbondale. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, 12 to 13. It says, For the word... Of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You want to know what our method is here? It's really quite simple. The method is the word. The word is the method. We sing the Word. Andy touched on it this morning. We sing the Word. We preach the Word. We share the Word. We memorize the Word. We're all about the Word. We learn the Word. And we pray for the Word. We pray the Word. That's what we do. And the good news is, guys, we can't, we can't change anybody's hearts. You can't change anybody's heart. I can't change anybody's heart. Jared can't change anybody's heart. The only thing that can change the heart of a, and raise the dead is the Word of Christ. Christ is the only one that can raise the dead. Amen. And the only way they're going to hear about this Christ who raises the dead is through the Word. And how will they hear unless someone is preaching to them? So put this, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, go throw it in the trash can. It's not, it's not New Testament Christianity. Amen. Christianity is open your mouth, share your testimony, tell them your story and sprinkle the Word in throughout it. Pray for them. Do whatever it takes to get them exposed to the Word of Christ. Whatever it takes. Give them books that describe the Word of God. Get them in there. Jared's talking about going to Steak and Shake. Let's go to Steak and Shake. Let's just go through John. I'm not an expert. It doesn't matter. God's Word is. The Holy Spirit is an expert. How about we start praying? 
Let's take them and get them in the Word however we possibly can and then begin to pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives. I had people talking to me and arguing with me, but I tell you where, where the rubber meet the road for me was up in that attic bedroom, all alone with the Scriptures, all alone with the Holy Spirit. And those guys were praying for me. There was one night, it was a, I'd done this, this, this uh, I got plastered, and I had my head, I was, I was passed out with my head in a trash can. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and one of these brothers, and I get choked up thinking about it, but he, was, he had his head, his head in his hands, and he was praying for me in the middle of the night. And that, that's where it's at. That's, that's New Testament Christianity. But we, pragmatism and all the, the bells and the whistles, and we, we can have it all, but we will have no power apart from praying in the Spirit and apart from preaching the Word of Christ. And the good news is, you don't have to do it. Dad's, dad's in the back. He taught me to play some golf, and I'm, t- I'm not very good at golf, but I do remember this, and it was helpful. He said, Russ, just, you're swinging too hard. Just keep your head down and let the club do the work for you. And it's amazing how that, how that worked. And, and it's amazing how this is a, a double-edged sword that pierces to divide soul and, and what was it? Soul and spirit. This, this right here can do it. So just, just give it to them. Pray and let it work. Let it work. That's all you're responsible to do. And I, and I love this quote from Martin Luther. I read this when I was in seminary. He said this, and this is during the Reformation. Okay, He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. That's all I did. Martin, everybody's like, this is the great reformer Martin Luther. You want to know what he did? This is what he did. He taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept, or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, German guys, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. End quote. And if anything is going to happen here in Carbondale, in 20, 30 years, we look back at all this and, and God was pleased to do anything, we're going to have the exact same testimony. I did nothing. The Word did it all. So the Word is growing, it's prevailing. In Ephesus, now it's euphoric, right? Heaven, heaven on earth, right? Great results are happening. Everybody's just dancing in the streets. Is that what's happening? Well, some, of, some of the people are dancing in the streets. Some of it's great. But then what happens? A riot breaks out. That's uh, anticlimactic, maybe. A little anticlimax there. No, it's not this euphoric heaven-on-earth experience. It is a heaven-on-earth experience for the church. And we can have this heaven-on-earth experience anytime we want it in the presence of Christ. But guess what came? Rioting came. And you got this silversmith, and he's making this, this god, or this uh, god, to, uh, this, these statues, these metal silver statues to Artemis, the goddess of Ephesus. And so likely I was doing some research, you know, probably they're talking about these sacred stones. And it's probably a meteorite or something came to the earth and they found pieces of this stone. And they thought, well, it's the goddess, let's, let's call her Artemis. And so anyway, this guy's making buku's amounts of money because people are coming and buying his little silver statues. And this is his livelihood. So here comes the gospel, here comes the word. It flies right in the face of his worship, of his idol. 
And what's his response to that? And people are going to respond in one of two ways if the Word of God is being taught to them. It's, it's never like a neutral experience. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. There's no, no middle ground. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. I came to cause division. So it's not just this, this kumbaya kind of a, a thing that he's bringing here. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father apart from me. So here comes this, this God, this Christ, this King, and he says, come, are, are you going to be a citizen of my kingdom? Or am I just going to be a citizen of your kingdom? It doesn't work that way. And in the church, it can easily become that. Jesus just becomes this little pocket-sized Jesus, and you just kind of invite him into your life. You invite him into your kingdom. And who's still the king of your kingdom? That's the question. So don't think that this is just Artemis out here. This Ephesus out here. This can happen right in here. Who is the king of your kingdom? Is it you? Or is it Christ? Is Jesus a citizen of your kingdom? Or are you a citizen of his kingdom? Vitally important question to ask. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're passionate about their religion. They're passionate about their culture. And this is what we run into as individuals. Is Jesus Christ, and this is really appropriate for Bible Belt Christianity, subculture Christianity, where we think it's brave when we wear a t-shirt to school or to work or something like that. Guys, Jesus ultimately comes to you. He's going to be, he says, put your hand in the plow and follow me and burn all this stuff. I'm going to be the king of your life. And if you do that, this is not a painful, this is going to be a, a, a joyful thing. I, I talk to my kids all the time. I'm not, we're not giving you and telling you not to go and touch the stove because we want you to be miserable. We're telling you not to touch the stove and to turn away from that because we love you and we don't want you to get hurt. And the other thing that I've noticed in raising kids is that their disobedience, disobedience affects everybody, not just them. Uh, it doesn't just hurt them. We come and we discipline them, and that hurts us. I don't enjoy that one bit. It's a, it's a, I can't tell you how many tears I've shed disciplining my kids, and Jenny will tell you the same thing. It affects mommy and daddy, and then it affects the person they sinned against or were disobedient to. So it's a community. It affects everybody. And so here is Jesus. He says, turn away from all these worldly things, shatter all these idols, and come and worship me. So I just want to finish, I guess, with this. And I, I, we try to go, I try to tackle too much in this sermon, but, uh, um, but I've enjoyed it anyway. Uh, I love the movie The Matrix. And in the movie The Matrix, you've got Neo and Morpheus and all these guys. I don't like the other, the last two movies as much. I, just, I like the first one. And it's, it's just, there's a lot of parallels in it. But uh, Morpheus gets uh, Neo in the room, and, and basically there's this um, the red pill and a blue pill. And Morpheus says to him, hey, if you take this red pill, you will know reality the way it really is. It's going to be a painful experience. It's going to be disillusioning. It's going to be dizzying but you'll know the truth. You can take the red pill and know the truth, or you can take the blue pill and remain in ignorance. Neo chooses to take the red pill and know the truth. And he goes through this dizzying experience. He, he wakes up naked in this pool of water. It's like slimy stuff. It's disgusting. 
he, he's trying to take it all in. His eyes are wide open. He gets so dizzy that he throws up. Uh, and then he begins to learn about the new world or the world that the way it really is. He begins to learn all about it. And it's similar to this allegory that Plato used to write about, about a cave. And you've got this guy down at the, the bottom of this cave, and he's been chained to this wall like a slave, and he's been seeing these shadows on the wall his whole life, and that's all he's ever known. What he doesn't realize is up above them in another part of the cave, there's a, a, a fire, and there's a puppet show going on. He doesn't know about that. All he's ever seen are shadows. Well, here, here he doesn't even realize there's a whole new world outside of the cave. There's sunlight. There's oceans. There's beauty untold that he's never even realized existed before. Well, here comes Jesus. Here comes the gospel to you all this morning and to me. And it says, here, here's reality the way it was meant to be seen. Everything that you've ever seen is cursed. You don't know what's really out there. And now we, we can take your blinders off. We can take the, the scales off your eyes and you can see reality and view the world the way it was meant to be viewed. This is the way. And this is what is the invitation to every human being in the gospel. Come, let the blind see, let the deaf hear, let the mute tongue be loosed, let the paralytic rise and walk, and let the dead man rise and walk and live forever. There's no other way that captives can be set free except by the Word. And the Word is what Christ Church, this is what we're all about. We're going to sing it. Andy's coming up here. I'm going to have Andy come up and we're going to sing the Word. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. What, what is the only response? The only response we have is thank you. I... Uh, if you, if you had a, I'm going to finish with one more thing. I've not preached in a while, so I'm, I'm really kind of getting all this out. Uh, but, uh, you know, just, just imagine you've got a, a grandchild, and you've worked your entire life, and you've saved up this great inheritance for this grandchild. And you get, and you're, you're getting ready to, to die. You're on your deathbed, and you bring the grandchild to you, and you, and you give them this envelope, and it's got this seal on it. you get the really nice wax family name insignia stamped on there, and you give it to them, and you say, you say, I want you to have this. I've worked my entire life for this. I've, I've sweated for this. I've, there's blood, sweat, and tears all over this. I want you to have this. What would, the, what would be the most inappropriate response from that grandchild? The most inappropriate response, the greatest disservice that that grandchild can do to that grandfather is to take that envelope and throw it in the garbage and do nothing with it. How do you honor, how is that grandfather honored? The grandfather is honored when you take that, that inheritance and you break that seal open and you smile and you dance and you enjoy it and you say thank you. We're gonna say thank you. Thank you to Jesus. And we wanna invite you to come and just and symbolically, I know you're, everybody in this room is struggling with idols in some way, shape or form. If you'd like to come and have prayer, you wanna come and just come into this kingdom you want to come into this inheritance, I would love to pray with you. Uh, you know, you can pull, uh, Cody will be up here. You can pray with Cody. Uh, you can pray with us after the service if you'd like to do that. Uh, but we're going to just worship now. That's the only response that I know for such a great gospel.
theology 